As clinicians, we really want the data, we want the actual insights. We take back medicine. Now it's starting to shift to quantified health. Wearables being a nice to have to a must have. That's where big data really is. It's not a specific device anymore that's exciting. It's what we can do with the data. Thinking bigger, much bigger. Welcome to Healthy Conversations, the podcast, an open discussion amongst healthcare professionals about what we've learned from the front lines of the pandemic and how it's transforming our industry in real time. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft. I'm really pleased to be joined by Adam Pellegrini, who's the SVP of Enterprise Virtual Care and Consumer Health at CVS, and Dr. Eric Topol, who's the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine at Scripps, a cardiologist, and has many other hats as well. And uh, we're gonna be diving into a conversation, uh, exploring some of the elements uh, related to COVID, big data, the future of medicine. Um, so let's get started. I thought I'd start with Adam, you know, in the topic of sort of big data for, for public health, you know, you've dedicated a lot of your career to consumer health tools. Um, you were previous with Fitbit and you've seen these tools evolve and uh, able to capture more data that might apply to public health purposes. So I was wondering how, what your view was on sort of the consumer side tying to public health. Well, thanks for the question. I believe wearables and biometric data as a whole can play a big role in public health. Um, a lot of what I have learned has actually been from Dr. Topol um, and the work we've done for many, many years together in different hats, um, trying to look at uh, how can data itself, specifically healthcare wearable data and other, other biometrics, how can that show trends and potentially down the road even predict trends of what can happen? And the, the key behind consumer health and this generation of data, you have to have something that is sticky, that is engaging, that is fun uh, in many ways for people to use it on a regular basis. Um, for folks to use it on a regular basis, that's how you generate the corpus of data to be able to do meaningful insights on. Moving from wearables being a nice to have to a must have, that transition has to be through meaningful insights and clinical tools that could actually see the population trends and Eric's team is pioneering the work there. Yeah, I love to call it kind of the combination of predictalytics and of where are you and where is that patient or population heading? So, you know, Eric, you've, you and your colleagues have been driving a lot of the integration of consumer health tools, uh, particularly in the era of COVID. Maybe you could touch on what you're learning. Uh, you're helping lead up the DETECT study. What's the cutting edge and what are the implications now and into the future? Yeah, well, first, Daniel, let me just thank uh, you and Adam to have the chance to have a conversation with you, two great long-term friends who uh, share enthusiasm for digital uh, tools to understand people. So on the COVID-19 story back in March, we set off uh, the DETECT study, which is really uh, a very interesting way to get our arms around a, a kind of sorry scene here in the United States, which is... Right now, it's thought that over eight and a half percent of Americans have been infected, and uh, the spread is still rising, and it's very troubling. And everyone talks about test, 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 but the problem is we can't test 330 million people on a frequent basis. So we have been complementing that with digital assessment. We had already validated that having resting heart rate and steps and if possible, sleep uh, metrics, that provided an incredible signal for flu. And we published that uh, early this year. And it just by happenstance, not knowing that it would be useful when we did the study, that it would turn out to be a, a, a valuable way to get our handle around COVID-19. So we have now 40,000 people who are data donors donating their 
continuous data, which is a different way to get uh, understand this uh, this condition. And we have a signal, which we the same as what we saw with flu. If your resting heart rate goes up, the sleep goes up, and, and your steps go down, that w could well indicate, not for an individual, that's the key, but for a cluster of people. So if a geographic cluster of people, we can say, hmm, something is going on here, and we correlate that with onset of symptoms, anodating symptoms. We can pick up asymptomatic infections, presymptomatic infections, all sorts of things with uh, wearable and it's exciting. And if we only could get state covered, but if we had millions or hundreds of thousands of people, we could do a really good job of predicting where would be the next group of people that are suspect to have COVID-19 before it spread. So that's the tech. Maybe for Adam, you've seen a lot of evolution in just sort of the, the, the consumer wearables moving now to, to health. Some are being FDA approved. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing the evolutions of some that may do real-time blood pressure, maybe blood sugar yep. and others. Maybe what, what's your prognostication of, of What's most exciting now and what's coming on the on the wearable side? Well, uh, you mentioned that uh, the term check engine light for your health. That is something that I've been very passionate about ever since uh, I think it was uh, James Park that used that uh, first. And, and I uh, learned a lot from him um, of this idea that these things should, you know, wearables, uh, they should be like a check engine light, right? Uh, they should be able to have very basic signals um, that maybe run in the background. But as you go out and you hike, as you go out and you walk, to know that you have some sort of background intelligence service, constantly running, constantly crunching the data, looking at the algorithms, trying to tell you, hey, listen, something could be up, something could be coming. Um, you know, right now we see a lot of folks still going to some, you know, traditional symptom checkers that don't use bio, you know, streaming biometrics, um, that don't use quantifiable true sort of rigor, FDA rigored data, and then they get afraid, frankly, of some of the, the online assessments. I think we have the, the future is truly to have that fidelity of biometric streaming data into algorithms that could actually have that, that vision of a check engine light. And so I think those are the, that's the future of these devices. The FDA pre-cert program was launched to allow wearables and other devices um, to come up with really next generation novel concepts and, and get through FDA so that we could see a rapid acceleration of smart devices that have that, that intelligence service in the background. Having folks, you know, teams like Eric's team constantly pressure test and do studies, that's a critical piece to that future because um, we can all think of incredibly awesome ideas uh, and do a startup and come up with a really next generation, but it's only through that scientific rigor and those peer-reviewed studies that we can actually pressure test even our own inventions and make sure that they are the next generation of healthcare. So a, a shout out to the teams that are out there, not doing it just because we can, doing it because we want to prove out an evidence-based model towards population health. You know, we now have all this quantification, it's often called quantified self. <laughs> now it's starting to shift to quantified health where it can you know, flow to your healthcare provider. My Fitbit data now goes to my Apple Health Kit, to my doc at Stanford, but I don't think you ever really looks at that or knows what to do with it. And one of the challenges, and Eric, you've addressed this a lot, is how do you then connect the dots to the clinician uh, to leverage this sort of data modeling, et cetera, and use it practically? What are your insights or uh, opportunities in that space? I think the first step is that we as clinicians don't need to control everything. Uh, that was the thesis of the, the patient, we'll see you now. And you know, I think we are control freaks in general. And then the second part is a lot of these uh, apps, for sensors 
uh, are great for capturing the data, but they're not made to integrate well with healthcare professionals. Uh, we got great engineers, great sensors, <laughs> data capture, uh, veracity of data, but we're in, and that interface. Um, we need you know much better to be much better at it. So whether it's glucose or whether it's uh, you know any important metric, and the idea that we're seeing now, where people are being monitored at home with COVID-19 and uh, their oximetry data, for example, no less their vital signs. Um, you know, there are several health systems that are trying to use this now without a validated algorithm. It goes back to Adam's point is you got to nail this down. You got to make sure it's safe and it's working and all that. But, you know, one of the most important things is that get that data package that's real time getting to whoever, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, whoever is, is the uh, overseer of the data, yeah. the tech world is really good at certain parts, but not uh, making real world medicine um, work in a streamlined way. And we don't, as clinicians, really want the data. We want the actionable insights that can be applied with the evidence base behind it. So no one wants to see every step or sleep point or uh, you know EKG. The trick is to synthesize that. And part of your great book, Deep Medicine, is how do you um, Brock all that as a as a consumer, as a patient, or as a clinician, so we're not overwhelmed, and we can use that, you know, in, in really smart, hopefully more crowdsourced, actionable ways. We're seeing a massive use of at home technology, and what is the most critical element of the healthcare system right now is making sure our ICUs can be staffed and making sure our ICUs have equipment and emergency rooms. So right now we're seeing sort of an evolution of you know, these type of digital tools, telemedicine, virtual care, um, working with the healthcare system, which is needed for critical things that you have to do in a hospital. Um, so you're really seeing that future now because of COVID. These are huge numbers. And frankly, um, you know, I, I see this as the future trend. Most reports and analysis believe that we'll get to around 20 to 30% above baseline post COVID in the use of virtual care technologies. That's so important that you bring that up, uh, Adam. If we get really smart about this, it can be quite objective. There's ways to get most of the physical exam done if need be. There's of the sensor data. So it, we can go to this 2.0 telemedicine that is closer and closer simulating, not the same, but so many things will be able to be uh, shunted to this virtual mean. But imagine when you have your sort of medical tricorder, your pulse oximetry, the synthesis of your past medical history or your wearable data that's put in context for the clinician, that it's gonna really make these sort of visits up-leveled dramatically. Exactly. So Adam, I want to switch a bit sort of to what you're seeing sort of next. What gets you most excited? Uh, what do you think has the biggest impact for patients uh, going forward? Well, I'm really excited about, as Eric was talking about, the next generation of telemedicine that can actually leverage more biometrics. I think having a really strong virtual care strategy um, that actually makes it easy, makes it approachable, um, uh, is critical. Our Attain program has a concept of uh, healthy actions that actually is leveraging the biometrics to say this is what you you know should do next. Um, I think the more we can do simple bite-sized actions, um, we can help enable those for consumers. That's really what gets me excited. Distilling the complexity, distilling the, the multiple biometric data streams, distilling all of that down so that we can just provide very simple guidance and navigation. Um, and then when they, you know, when a consumer gets into the 
the healthcare system when they get into the flow that you know can be fraught with different types of obstacles or confusion points how do we make that so seamless and frictionless that they breeze through any bureaucracy so they can get to care and not have to worry about anything else. That is why I got into digital health. You know, as a medic in the army, you take care of one person at a time. You all are doctors, same thing. Um, I always said to myself, wouldn't it be great if we could do one, I could do one thing and take care of a thousand patients or 10,000 patients. You know, an algorithm is the answer to that question in, in many ways. What better time spent? Uh, than to focus on making sure that we reinforce those capabilities, invest in that research, and really champion those type of digital therapeutics and algorithms that can help people in mass. So really, it's not a specific device anymore to me that's exciting. It's what we can do with the data and what we can do to really drive healthy behaviors at a population level. All this data synthesizing now to make it useful, whether you're the empowered consumer or hopefully the smart clinician. You know, Eric, you've you've written and researched and helped promulgate this idea of how do we convert all, all this to be really useful. Um, maybe we just spend a minute on, you know, maybe start with Eric, what, what are really the barriers? Often there's misaligned incentives, it might be reimbursement or regulatory that are holding some of these things back and what's on your wish list to really accelerate things. One is that the tech world, health is still not the number one priority. The big tech titans, can they, can they work in this space which requires you know, FDA and all sorts of landmines that they're not familiar with. The next is the talent. So in order to do this work, you need, you know, really top flight AI scientists and teams that are willing to really invest in developing multi-layered complex algorithms, not just deep learning, but hybrid models. And we, we aren't seeing that because these same brilliant young people they don't get paid well in healthcare. In order to do this work, we need even more than deep learning. I'm not sure who made up the quote, but I often say it, you know, the AI is not going to replace your doctor, but the doctor uses AI will replace those who don't. What are some ways to sort of dispel the myths there? And as you've written about, you know, working together, is it where the power is? The immediate term is that AI can really bolster accuracy and speed and make things more efficient, like the workflow, the idea that you could interpret a scan of any type, you know, anything that's got a pattern, you can have machine support to get the answer, to get it right. The other thing is to get your, all the, the records reviewed and teed up so you don't have to spend scrolling through all these different screens to find out what's going on in the background of a person you're seeing. These are things that machines do better than humans, but that will benefit and free up time. And that's the gift of time. That's the second part, phase two, which is we basically get back to a point where we have an intimate relationship of patients and physicians patients and nurses, because that gift of time now, if we stand up for patients, we can actually override the administrators who have gotten it down to single digit minutes that you spend with a patient. And here you are, you're discussing a really serious matter, a serious diagnosis or worries about a patient and their family. And you have, you know, seven minutes and you're typing on a keyboard, looking at a screen. So we have to get, eliminate keyboards, restore the relationship. That's the long term. And that's going to take active work because the, the financial bean counters don't want to see productivity impaired. They, they don't want to see appointments go longer, clinic visits. But that has to happen in order for us to take medicine back. Absolutely. And, and you and Abraham Verghese on your medicine and, and machine podcast really help identify and elucidate kind of the, the power of doing that. You know, the topic of the day is obviously COVID, both uh, 
crushing the curve, eventually getting to recovery. Uh, we even to think, hopefully we're seeing some positive elements on vaccines out of, uh, out of UK, out of Oxford, and maybe out of Moderna. Eventually there's gonna be the need to go to your corner pharmacy or clinician to get your vaccine done. Maybe let's talk about what are some of the roles that CVS can do and the digital health community on recovery and prevention of even the next pandemic. Eric, you, must have, you have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, we haven't done a great job, particularly here in the US. What, what's mm-hmm. some of the biggest opportunities? You know, in order for us to get out of this mess that we're in right now, we have to get the unity of purpose. So we have some tough work ahead. You know, the science part is, turns out to be the easy part. I mean, and that's not easy. You know, in talking to Tony Fauci last week, he, he reviewed how from the day the Chinese sequenced the virus to having a template vaccine in five days. And, in, and the first trial in 62 days from the day the virus was sequenced. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it's astonishing. So the science has moved like a velocity that's unheard of, unprecedented, but the roadblocks that we may be facing are beyond what digital, I mean, we could use, you know, these tools of social media. Uh, you know, I've never been on TikTok, but it seems to be having effects, <laughs> especially with Sarah Cooper and, you know, great talents there. But if we had creative ways that people are receptive to the advances in science, as they should be, because that's what's going to get us out of this. It's not just a pandemic, it's an infodemic. And we almost need to think proactively now about new ways to meet the people who have particular views that uh, are almost anti-public health. Um, Yeah, yeah. We're going to have several really good vaccines, I think, based on all the data we know so far, phase two data, and making a gazillion doses is not the rate limiting step. It's the acceptance of people. You know, Adam, on the, on the CVS side, I mean, a lot of what you do is also integrated, including how you communicate everything about vaccines to wearing a mask is about, you know, design thinking and how you message and how you might message it for different folks, depending on where they are. Are there sort of lessons that you've gleaned there that uh, would be applicable? We should learn from history, for one. So that's one of my goals is to make sure we memorialize the, the lessons learned and how does digital health in some way, create templates so that we can, in the future, leave something for posterity uh, to be able to have uh, really quick tools to deal with a pandemic right away. I think from a design learning perspective, behavior change, uh, we have seen it now with COVID. We've seen that folks shift to telemedicine. That's a behavior change shift. Um, We've seen folks use more apps. So I think if we have those intrinsic drivers around public health that drive the behavior change and it's sustainable and we keep folks engaged after the behavior change happens, I think that's how CVS can play a role leveraging uh, behavior change uh, and, and making things seamless and easy so that folks can, can stay both virtual as well as in the brick and mortar. And that applies um, not just the consumer, but the healthcare provider. It might be initially lessons from Wuhan or Italy to, you know, the ICU in Houston or in San Diego. Exactly. What would be your your view or vision for where we can really take some of the things that have been sparked by COVID in a positive way, uh, reshape healthcare around the planet? That's a lot to unpack there. You know, the dream for me is to have a planetary health system where you have federated data, so it doesn't leave any country or place, but it's used with privacy and security protected and homomorphic encryption and we learn from each person because this transcends any inner country uh, tension or strife. This is about uh, humankind. I think we can do it. You know, I had a paper with Kai Fu Lee of China uh, in Nature Biotech that outlined how we can do it. We should do it. And, you know, I actually think by working together, it might reduce some of the issues that countries have with each other to the, a common purpose. 
So that's where big data really is. It's thinking bigger, much bigger. But, you know, more today is we have ridiculous health inequities, as we've seen with COVID-19, the proportion that are affected both with respect to infections and bad outcomes among Blacks and Latinos and Native Americans and all the underrepresented. It's horrific because we don't have a national health system that is accommodating all people. The only one in the world of the developed nations that doesn't have all of its people covered. And that needs to be remedied right away. Yeah, no time like now and the fierce urgency of now. So to wrap up, maybe we'd let both of you sort of speak directly to healthcare providers. I'd urge all of you who are listening to follow Eric on Twitter at Eric Gopal. I mean, an incredible, I don't know how you do it, but you synthesize so much and share it out and it's super impactful. I think Adam used the term pressure test. And this has been the ultimate pressure test for medicine. And all the providers that are out there, you know, had to deal with the risk and the lack of protective gear and all the issues to take care of patients. Uh, and that goes not just for people on the front lines uh, of in, in the ICU, in the hospital, but the pharmacists, the paramedics, I mean, the entire continuum. You know, this has been really rough. If, if anything, the public acknowledges the importance of the medical profession more than ever. We are hopefully learning from this, whether we have a second wave or whether we face threats like this again, we'll never let the medical professionals down like what occurred here. Yeah, I would just uh, echo Eric's comments. First of all, thank you to everyone that is out there on the lines doing really hard, very uh, stressful work every single day. It takes an entire village to keep the machine running. I know that at CVS, we are absolutely committed to healthcare professionals, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, medical assistants, providers to provide whatever resources we can to deal with this time. And when this is over, we must not forget, right? That this period of time, uh, it's not just gonna have an endpoint. It should be a remembrance of how do we make sure that we are better prepared in the future and support the healthcare system. What do you think it's important for healthcare professionals to know about you know, the digital health, big data convergence from hospital to home, to mobile, to virtual, to omics that, that we can take, take forward? Well, it's, it's the future. Uh, we got a ways to go. We're at the very nascent phase of that, but eventually it's going to be um, exceptional. Uh, we'll fulfill the dream someday for prevention. Uh, that's our best shot, but uh, it's not around the corner. It's going to take a while. And I, and I would say from a, someone who builds digital health products, a product strategy perspective, one thing that I've been telling my teams lately is we talk a lot about consumer experience um, how do we make an amazing consumer experience? We need to start really preaching about provider experience. And by provider, I mean all types of providers. We need to really emphasize both to make it actually work. It takes a doctor to take care of a patient uh, or a provider to take care of a patient uh, just as much as it takes a patient to have a visit with a provider. So I think we need to think about this uh, holistically now. And in, in many cases, you know, there's that famous quote from William Gibson, the future's already here, just not evenly distributed. And I always encourage my physician or clinician colleagues to try out some of the tools and platforms that exist, even if it's not fully reimbursed, but you can get amazing insights into your patient and practice and help catalyze the future of healthcare to bring that future faster. So with that, I really want to thank you, Adam Pellegrini and Dr. Eric Topol for an amazing conversation. Um, and for all both of you are doing uh, to really reshape a much better future of healthcare for all of us around the planet. 
Thank you for listening to Healthy Conversations, the podcast. It's our mission to reveal the front lines of the healthcare profession and educate everyone as to the challenges and potential opportunities of a world changed by Corona.